Hello everyone. Just a quick notice that later on this week we'll be releasing a quick Q&A podcast. So if you have any cues for myself or Rhiannon or about how we make this podcast, then come and leave us a message on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page. We'll be recording on Tuesday the 17th, so get to it quickly. And now, here's Emperors of Rome. Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series looking at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer from Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. This is episode XX, Agrippina the Younger. While it's been great hearing the story of the emperors, there's a lot about ancient Rome that we're not getting to hear. So we put a call out to you, our lovely audience, for topics that you'd like to hear about. Something that got mentioned really quickly is, what about the empresses? So today we bring you the story of Agrippina the Younger. And thanks to the person who suggested this, Robin Chipman from the United States. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Agrippina is born into the Julio-Claudian family and she is associated with some names that we've already seen. So her father is Germanicus, who you'll remember is the golden boy of Rome. You know, he's Claudius's brother, uh, grandson of Livia, very well connected. And this also means, because remember all of this family is connected, that her brother is Caligula. So she is the daughter of somebody who's highly regarded, not only of Germanicus, but her mother is Agrippina the Elder, who's seen as sort of the perfect wife. So she comes from this perfect parental background and she is, as he's going to be, the sister of a future emperor who is regarded as crazy. So she's kind of got both sides of the coin there. As she's the daughter of Germanicus, I gather she would have grown up around a lot of battlefields. Well, it seems that Germanicus and Agrippina took their children with them. We mm. certainly know that the sons were with them because we know Caligula's called Caligula because of the little boots. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, she probably was taken on tour uh, with Germanicus. Do we know a lot else about the young Agrippina? We don't really. She would have had a traditional upbringing and that means that she would have been reasonably well-educated and that she would have lived a life of privilege. So who were the influential figures in her life then? Well, probably her mother, Agrippina the Elder, the mother of Claudius, Antonia the Elder, and Livia herself. So there are a lot of strong women already there, women who are fairly positive role models. If you think about the fact that she's born in 15, which is a year after Augustus dies, she's brought up in this system that's sort of pretty much established, this, this imperial system. So all the way along, we've been talking about that change from republic to empire and whether it's quite stable yet. And there are theories about, you know, which emperor comes in and there isn't even a question about going back to the republic. That's not quite the case when she's born, but it's becoming more and more stable. It's becoming more and more normal. So it's like she's born into a royal family. So when Agrippina is old enough, the most logical thing is let's marry her off as soon as we can to somebody powerful to better the family's interests. So who is she married off to? She's married off to somebody with a great name, Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus. Remember Ahenobarbus means bronze beard. We, mm. we mentioned that in the Nero podcast because it's Nero's name as well. This is Nero's dad. 
might be a family that we haven't heard of, but they are a very distinguished family, the Ahenobarbi or the Domitii. And so this is a good marriage for her. She's married very young by our standards. She's married at 13. Her husband's 30 years older than her, more than 30 years older than her. And that, again, is not abnormal for Roman society. 13 is sort of the lower end of what you'd marry off a girl, but it's it's not seen as abnormal in any way. And what Suetonius tells us in the life of Nero about Ahenobarbus is that he's kind of the logical outcome of a family that's sort of been degrading. That's the way that he puts it. They were great and noble once, but he's sort of got this schema by which each generation seems to get worse and worse. Now, he's almost certainly leading up to, you know, Nero's father was awful, but Nero's even worse. So mm. we've got this kind of steady decline almost. But he does make it sound like Agrippina's husband is not much fun to live with. However, Suetonius makes him sound like quite a, a satirical guy in that Suetonius says that Domitius says about his son, I don't think anything produced by me and Agrippina could possibly be good for the state or the people. Right, so he didn't have a very high regard for his son, his wife, or himself by the sounds of it. Well, it's mediated through Suetonius. So Suetonius didn't like him very much. Yes, but what it makes me think is that Suetonius is at the very least representing Nero's father, Agrippina's husband, as someone who's quite cynical. We don't know if that's true. Obviously, it reflects badly on Nero himself, but it's almost like Nero's father has, he's sort of self-aware. We're both awful people, so what we produce must be even more awful. Yeah, yeah. So when Tiberius dies and Caligula becomes the emperor, that's Agrippina's brother, so her influence must have grown at that time. Well, you'd think, wouldn't you? Uh, initially, that is the case, and she's given honours along with other members of the imperial family. So when you swear an oath by the emperor, her name gets mentioned in it too. But that seems to fall apart quite quickly because she's implicated in a conspiracy and she's exiled. It's a conspiracy that seems to be mounted by someone called Lentulus, in 39 CE, and she and her sisters are exiled. Was it a conspiracy to kill Caligula? Uh, it's certainly a conspiracy to replace him, so the implication would be that they're going to get rid of him, yeah. So she's exiled as a result of that. Mm. There's a way in which things are conflated here because Caligula apparently charged his sisters with adultery. And that means, you know, the automatic result of being found guilty of adultery after Augustus's laws is that you are exiled. But in ancient historians increasingly see, uh, and they actually see Augustus's exile of his daughter and granddaughter possibly in this light too. They increasingly see it as something political. So it might not necessarily be that adultery had taken place, or if it had, maybe it was just convenient, because this is a woman who is either involved in a plot or involved with some people who might be seen as rivals. So it's, it's not necessarily the case that this was a moral reform, but it's a way of distancing yourself from women who might be trying to link themselves to the wrong men. Mm, so whatever is in the best interest of the emperor can be justified. Absolutely. Yeah. So while she's in exile, her husband dies, and she's allowed to return to Rome by the next emperor, Claudius. How does she adjust to life as a single mother? 
<laughs> I don't think it's what we might think of as life as a single mother. No. And remember, Roman women rarely remain single for very okay, long. Okay, so she's married off quickly, I take she it? She is. She's married to someone called Crispus. Doesn't seem to have been a very happy marriage. And the inevitable rumours when he dies in 47 are that she actually poisoned him. But she's back with her son in Rome. And she's kind of back at the centre of power because she's been brought back by her uncle Claudius. Galba's mother-in-law gave Acropina in a whole bevy of married women, a public reprimand and slapped her in the face. Mm. Well, there are hints that she's she's seen as a bad woman during this time in that the future emperor, Galba, he's going to come after Nero, his mother-in-law is supposed to have slapped Agrippina because she'd been misbehaving with her son-in-law. So there are rumours that Agrippina was an adulteress. Again... These are the kind of rumours that always circulate about women who are seen as too powerful or to be bad women in other ways. Romans always see kind of sexual deviance or promiscuity as going hand in hand with bad behaviour, like poisoning people or just scheming too much. So after that, though, she becomes married to her uncle, the Emperor Claudius. She does. How does that end up happening? We've gone into that a bit in the Claudius episodes, and that causes a lot of controversy. Well, Claudius has been married before, of course, and he's actually killed his previous wife. She's charged with adultery, and she was involved in a conspiracy. Messalina, the mother of his children, has been executed, so he's single again. And as we mentioned, Claudius seems to be this man who constantly gets married, so he targets, I suppose, his niece. And this is not a marriage that's okay by the Romans. They see this as a form of incest. This is something that has to be put through the Senate as, as a special case for him to marry Agrippina. And remember that Agrippina is the daughter of his brother Germanicus. This is how they're related. They are quite closely related. Once she's become the empress, how powerful did she become? She becomes empress in 49, and this gives her an inordinate amount of power. Everyone who's that close to the emperor has potentially access to being able to do anything. If they can influence the emperor, I mean, he can do things like start wars, get rid of people. So she has to be able to manipulate Claudius, and this is what her reputation is, that she is a very manipulative figure from this point onwards, and that she sort of plays Claudius. She's given the title Augusta, isn't she? She is given the title Augusta, which is a title that had been given to Livia. And this was only given to her when Augustus died. So it was a kind of inheritance from Augustus. But now it's becoming something that is given to empresses if they're seen as particularly prestigious. And we should always bear in mind with Agrippina that she continues to have... This, this great reputation for the Romans because she is the daughter of Germanicus. So that's ongoing. That kind of puts her in a position of influence anyway. And this is probably why she's allowed to marry Claudius, why the Senate doesn't just come down and say, that's un completely unacceptable, we can't do that and cause a fuss, because she's got this enormous amount of prestige just by virtue of being their child. It's what Caligula had as well, but Caligula well and truly blotted his copybook. So Agrippina 
she really benefits from who her parents are. How did she use her position of power over Claudius? Well, she used it very effectively because she persuades him to adopt her son, Nero, as his heir. Even though, as we mentioned before, he's got a perfectly good son to succeed him, Britannicus. She actually does other things to ensure this as well. For example, she ensures that Nero is married to his stepsister, Octavia. So Nero marries Claudius's daughter. And when we talked about Claudius, we sort of presented this as something that is a dynastic marriage, which it is. But Agrippina has to make certain moves in, in order for this to happen. Not only does she have to persuade Claudius, but Octavia's got a fiancé. So she's been promised to somebody else. That could be broken at any time. You know, these things aren't hard and fast for the Romans. But Agrippina seems to be the one that brought about the end of that engagement. She does it in quite a nasty way by having the fiancé accused of a crime. Ironically, she has him accused of incest. She will later be accused of incest herself with Nero. And he ends up killing himself because of this. So she gets rid of him in a very nasty, manipulative way. She's accused of poisoning other people in order to further her interests as well. So she starts to get a very bad reputation around this time. So once Claudius dies and she's rumoured to poison him and Nero becomes emperor, is she the real power behind the emperor at this point? Hmm. Well... He is quite young. He is very young. He's 17. Yeah. And she is one of the very strong influences. So there's Agrippina along with Seneca, his tutor, and Boris, his praetorian prefect. And remember, she was responsible for bringing Seneca to be Nero's tutor. Seneca had been in exile as well, and she persuaded Claudius to bring him back from exile and then to appoint him in the imperial court as her son's tutor. So you can imagine that initially there was quite a good rapport between Agrippina and Seneca, and they together sort of ensured that Nero was stable and did the right thing. But this seems to have fallen apart, and we don't know exactly how. Agrippina fell out of favor with Seneca and Boros, and they seem to have been complicit with getting rid of her, at least getting rid of her as an important influence in the court. But previously, when we talked about Nero, you referred to his early reign as the good five years. Yes. It would be safe to infer that a lot of this good five years does come down to Agrippina the Younger's influence. It certainly would, yes. That speaks quite well for her. And in a way, she doesn't have a good reputation with ancient historians. And that is partly because... Nero ends up having such a bad reputation and she's sort of seen as responsible for him starting to deteriorate. It's sort of a double-edged sword and I feel a bit sorry for Agrippina here in that her influence is seen as malign. So as we'll see, he has to get rid of her or he thinks he has to get rid of her and he does. And that's sort of the beginning of his downfall. But, you know, he gets rid of his mother and then she's blamed for the fact that he turns into this monster emperor. It's almost like she can't win. So when Nero gets older, I suppose he, he's trying to establish himself a lot more, which would almost create a bit of a power struggle between himself and his mother, wouldn't it? Well, that's traditionally the way that this is seen, and I guess it's not unlikely. 
And there are various theories put forward as to what they argue over. And one of the popular ones, one of the ones that comes up in Suetonius is that he wants to get married again. Uh, he wants to marry a woman called Popeia Sabina, who's a very aristocratic woman. That's not the problem. But the stories go that by this point, his relationship with his mother is becoming very unhealthy and there are actually suggestions of incest. And because of this, she has power over him and Nero is worried about bringing up that he wants to marry Popeia Sabina. And so he decides to get rid of Agrippina so that he can marry Popeia. Now, this is not universally the theory, even amongst ancient historians, because he does eventually marry Popeia, but it's a couple of years after his mother dies. So it looks like it's not a direct cause. Also, we, we don't know whether there was incest there. If there was, then it may have been that, uh, and this is sort of Tacitus's theory, that the only way that he can escape from that relationship is by killing Agrippina. These are quite sensationalist versions of this relationship. But what is clear is that it does break down and he does seem to have been responsible for her death. So how did she end up dying then? Well, even that is quite contradictory in the ancient accounts. But the stories are great. And there's a brilliant account in Tacitus, which I urge everyone to go look at in Tacitus's Annals, which describes how he tries to kill her. It's in Suetonius too, but it's at more length in Tacitus. They've had an argument. He pretends that there's going to be a reconciliation, so he invites her to dinner. To get to him, she has to get into a boat and sail out to see him. And he has this boat constructed that will just fall apart at some point. All right, so she will drown. And this happens. The ceiling of the boat falls in on her and she's nearly killed. But Agrippina, see, this is where I think she's quite a woman, if this story is true. She swims to safety, so it fails. Right. And the, the kind of almost slapstick part of all of this is that her companion who's with her, a servant woman, thinks that it's an accident and thinks that if she tells the boatmen that she's the empress that she's Agrippina, they'll save her. But they're actually assassins. And so when she says, I'm Agrippina, I'm Agrippina, because it's dark, they can't tell, they just hit her to death. So they do kill somebody, but it's the wrong woman. And Agrippina is up on the shoreline safe. That sounds quite elaborate. It does sound very elaborate. And, Firstly, and you've got to build a boat. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. And this is why some people take it with a bit of a pinch of salt these days. Yeah, I mean, if you want to get rid of someone, there are much, much simpler ways of doing it. And certainly Tacitus tells us that Agrippina feared that she was going to be poisoned, which is sort of a more obvious and well-trodden path that we've seen in this family before, and that she anticipated this so she was already taking antidotes, which is not as much fun as the boat story, but I think is more important because it gives us this impression that everybody is very suspicious in this imperial court. Mm. All right. So there's, I mentioned in the Nero podcast that there's this kind of theatricality. There's everybody's putting on a performance, right? They're, they're sort of saying what Nero wants to hear. And Agrippina's putting on a performance. She's pretending everything's okay, but she's secretly taking antidotes to poison, which is pretty extreme. But in the end, it seems to have been that a freedman was sent to kill her in a very direct way by putting a blade into her. 
But the great account of this, which also comes from Greek historian Dio, who when the assassins approach, claims that Agrippina says, strike me here in my womb, which is, is sort of quite, you know, it's, it's, it's a great metaphor. For, for being the, betrayed by her son. Exactly, mm. by the child who came from her womb. So how do you view such a figure in history? Is she terrible? Is she tyrannical? Is she a monster? Is she manipulative? She's sort of all of those things. And she's very, very clever. I mean, it, it didn't work out in the end for her, unlike some of the other imperial women who could work the system, were able to manipulate their way through it. But I guess you could say she's a product of what the family is becoming. It's a family in which you have to tread very carefully. And if you're a woman, then you derive your power from the man you're associated with, your husband or your son. And you have to place yourself very carefully in this family because it's not just the members of the family. There are also freedmen who are becoming increasingly powerful. So can you keep them on side? Can you keep them in control? She seems to have had power relationships with some of Nero's freedmen and Claudius's freedmen. And there were rumors that she was having an affair with one of them. Remember, she's been exiled by an emperor who was her brother. So she has to be very careful about how she moves around this family. And I guess she thinks at first that putting her son in this position of power will ensure her safety. But it doesn't. It falls apart and she tries to protect herself at the end and to a certain extent does. But in the end, Nero is more powerful and he kills her off. And her reputation doesn't come off all that well, I suppose. Even though Nero, or maybe because Nero is seen as such a malign emperor, somebody who's cruel and self-absorbed and all of the things we said about him in the Nero podcasts, even though she's a Nero victim, she doesn't come off well either. And this is partly because she's his mother, so she can be depicted as responsible for this monster emperor. Yeah, but she is rumoured to have killed 10 people, including two of her own husbands. Exactly. She's, she's seen as somebody who's very destructive herself, and she will kind of do anything to retain power. So her reputation overall is terrible. In a way, she's the most powerful woman who's existed in Rome yet because she's come from this incredibly prestigious background in the imperial family. She's been the sister of an emperor, the wife of an emperor, the mother of an emperor. Nobody else has had that amount of influence. And it's almost like she's so powerful they have to get rid of her. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome, if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes. And please leave a review there and tell your friends about it. Emperors of Rome has a Facebook page, so come and join the great little community that's growing there on Facebook. And we are both on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, we continue the story of Emperor Nero. And we look at, in particular, whether he was actually playing the fiddle while Rome burnt to the ground. Until then, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.